It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. So my special series uh, that I've been going through, which is uh, Standing for Purity, and it's sort of a, for us that are here in Windsor, we've, we did the filming for the Purity Summit on Sunday, but for everyone else uh, around the world, they're going to be getting the Purity Summit streamed this fall. And so we're sort of in the mood uh, of purity around here, and it's been a unique focus. You know, here you guys are, and you know, most of you are here for uh, a semester of training. And so it's a unique thing to spend a week uh, with uh, purity talk, uh, quite a bit of it. Because we've been doing Ellerslie for 10 years, and we haven't spent a great deal of time on just the topic of sexual purity. But in the past week, uh, we've spent an awful lot. So, uh, but it's been neat. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It brings back a lot of memories for me, since this has a, been a big deal in my life for years. So this is going to finish up the, the series, the little mini-series. And this one's called Honorable Love. Uh, I think it's, uh, it'll be a fun one, too. We'll get some good laughter in this one. And at the same time, it's quite profound. So when you see the word honorable love, the word honor, I think, is it ranks up there as one of my favorite words. And I'm not sure why. I'm a words guy, okay? So there's words I don't like, like rutabaga. I don't like the word. Uh, and it reminds me of the word rude. You know, and so as a result, I don't like the word rude either. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's a word that is not attractive to me. Cabbage. It's not, a, it's not an attractive word. Uh, and then you get something like roseate or autumn. I like those words. You know, they, they, they bring certain emotion with them. And honor is one of those words. Like if you, if you said chastity, I don't like the word. But it's not like I don't like the concept. I don't, the word's not attractive to me. I'm not sure why. Because... You know, chastity is an aspect of honor, so you'd think I would be very excited about the word, but the, I'm, I'm very sensitive to words. I'm not sure where that comes from, if it's my mom who was an English teacher or what. Uh, I remember this, I was down in Australia, and we were sitting around a table, and it was all these adults with this little uh, two-year-old that was sitting on, maybe three-year-old, that was sitting on her mother's lap, and someone used the word lobby. Uh, and she, this little girl was drawing. She looks at me and goes, Lobby! <laughs> and she looks back down. And I go, and I, and I look, she goes, yeah, she really likes the word lobby. I go, really? Uh, and then, so I was talking a little later, and I slipped in the word lobby. And I said it. I was like, I'm in the lobby. And then this little girl looks up and goes, Lobby! <laughs> and I, I was extremely fascinated because that's the way I am. It's like there's certain words that catch me in a way that it's like, I like that word. And I'm not sure if all of us are that way. You know, some people are more linguistic in their leanings. Some people are probably more uh, mechanical in their leanings, maybe more uh, numbers-based in their leanings. I'm not sure what I am. I'm probably a mixture of, well, I'm a mixture of everything but mechanical. I don't know that I'm mechanical in my leanings. But uh, I'm definitely, I have that sense. It's a poetic sense. You know when you get a, a word, it's like, yeah, I would not stick that in a poem. You ever had that where you look at a word, it's like, that's a bad poem word. And that's why when you hear me talk about Greek or Hebrew words, I'll oftentimes joke about naming your child that. Because it's like you would never name your child that. It's just a terrible word. It sounds uh, terrible. Uh, like hagiazo, which is, uh, you know, the, the concept of being made holy. Hagiazo, great concept, terrible word. Uh, terrible sounding word. Great, great word. I don't want to criticize uh, the word. So honor, great word. What exactly is it? So when I describe honor, a simple rendition of the idea of honor is heaven's behavior, like the way that they behave in heaven here on earth. So a man being fully a man as God intended a man to be. A woman being fully a woman as a woman was intended by God to be. And so I've, I've made the comment many times, like, hey, guys, I have a... A special flying boss, if I did, I should say, is probably a better way of saying it. If I had a special flying bus, and this was part of like a bonus track in our uh, training, it's like, hey guys, follow me, we're going to get in our uh, flying bus, and we're going to go up to the heavenly realms, and actually be able to have a 
22nd visit of heaven. That's all God can allow this side of eternity. And so we're going to be able to go up there and, you know, it's going to be really special. We get up there and there's the heavenly temple and we walk into the heavenly temple. It's all happening very quick. And if I were to say, what do you see? What is it like? What is the atmosphere? What is the behavior? How do the cherubim, the seraphim, the angelic host relate to the presence of God? How does God relate to them? How does it smell? How does it look? You know, do you see, you know, like uh, dirty socks hanging over the altar? I mean, how, how does God keep his home? And then I would say, there's your pattern. In other words, that is, do you not know that you are the temple of the Most High God? Do you not know that that temple in heaven, the very dwelling place of God, has been made you on this earth? And so as a result, the way in which you live in this body is meant to showcase something. What is that? I'm going to say honor. It's the honor. It's the behavior. It's the deportment of the heavenly realms. So a man being fully a man, a woman being fully a woman. So that always stirs me. It's just a very noble concept. And maybe there's something to it. When I was originally had the vision for Ellerslie, which is now 27 years ago, uh, when I first wrote it down, uh, I called it Men of Honor. See, doesn't that stir you? It's like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And that's, that's what this is. This is, a, this is a school or a training of honor. That's what we're training. But it isn't because I'm going to give you a whole bunch of external rules and say, this is how you need to live. Instead, we're going to show you the God of all honor, the Holy Spirit, that he lives inside of you. When you believe in Christ and you're, you're fitted in Christ, you're put into Christ, and Christ is then fitted into you, and you actually are able to function in this body the way God intended you, well, now you can showcase honor. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you a recipe for honor, like practical honor. It's agape love plus heavenly heroism. So agape love in a very simple sense is considering others as more important. So I'm going to consider your needs above my own. And when I do that, it actually causes love to, to flow like a, like a river through me. When I say, you are more valuable than me. So how, do I, how does that affect my speech towards you? How does that affect my attitude towards you? When I treat you like royalty and I, and I treat your safety, your security, your life as more valuable than mine, well, you have something known as agape love. Heavenly heroism is ironically very similar, but it's an action dimension to it. So when you hear the word heroism, it's, it's like honor. I really like the word heroism, too. It's, it's, a, it's a word that stirs. And yet, what is it? It is a, self, a, a selfless sacrifice or a sacrificial action where you see the bullet coming and you stand in front to spare someone. The car is coming, you push them out of the way and you get hit by it. It is an extension of agape, but is a very specific ingredient, if you will, in this thing known as honor. So if we're going to display in this body the behavior of the heavenly realms, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like Jesus. Well, there's Jesus right there. It's agape plus heroism. He is moved by love unto that cross to lay down his life that others might live. And this is the great purpose of his life. So here we are talking about purity or even relationships, romance, all these things. It's like, how does that play into it? And I would say it's the essence of what makes it beautiful, what makes it amazing, what makes it last, is honorable love. So Philippians 2.3 is, of course, the classic picture of this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. On Monday, I think it was, could have been Wednesday, uh, I, I, maybe it was Wednesday, I said, I, I replaced out others for future spouse. So that it would read, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem their future spouse better than themselves. And so what it does is it changes a mentality. And this is actually what makes marriage so powerful, is you bring in the mind of Christ into it. And when you begin to consider your spouse is more important than yourself. You begin to consider your children is more important than yourself and how you relate to them. It doesn't mean, like as a father, I think I used this illustration before, that I give my children authority over me because I'm considering them greater than me. Actually, I know that I have a responsibility of authority, but I treat them as having more value, which means I'll lay down my life for them. And so I will expend my life on their behalf, and that is heavenly heroism at its greatest. 
So in Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul reasoning. Now, the, if you were to do a, a quick survey of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, you're going to see that the summation or the culmination of this book is found in 1 Corinthians 13. The whole thing is going to build up to that and then reason out from it. So, and if you guys remember 1 Corinthians 13, it's the love chapter is typically what it's known as. Love is patient, love is kind. That's actually a culmination. It's what Paul is going to refer to as a more excellent way. You see, the church at Corinth is in disrepair. It's a very unhealthy church at the time of that letter. And so Paul is bringing a correction to them. You see, they are doing all the, they're splintering all over the place. There's denominations all over the place. They have arguments over everything you can imagine. And Paul is saying, hey, you guys have lost sight of Jesus and him crucified. You've also lost the more excellent way. You're not doing this in love. And so they have, they're fighting for correct doctrine, but they don't have love. What's the good of all of this? So you're going to see Paul very delicately dealing with some of the most difficult issues in that time period. One was food sacrifice to idols. The fact that we don't have food sacrifice to idols makes us feel a little distant from Paul's discussion of this. It's like, you know, what? meat uh, sacrificed to idols does not mean anything to us. However, you go to certain Asian countries still to this day, this is a, this is a very real thing, and you have to know how to deal with this. So it is fascinating to think that this is a real uh, modern-day issue. I had some missionaries that came back from Cambodia that were saying, oh, no, no, this is, this is a big deal uh, over there. However, for us, it's like, what do we do with this? This is such a strange thing, and yet there's a principle, what I'm going to call heavenly or honorable love, in the midst of what Paul is doing and how he's reasoning. He's reasoning as if other people are more important than himself. In other words, the big argument in 1 Corinthians is, hey, I have liberty in Christ. And he goes, you're right, you do. But just because you have liberty in Christ doesn't mean you do whatever you want. It's like, well, I thought I was free to do whatever I want. No, no, you're free to now love. You see, before you were in bondage and a slave to sin, and you were not free to do that which was righteous. You were not free to love and to have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, but now you are. You have been set free not to do your own thing and to live for self. That sort of goes in the opposite direction. You've been set free to now live for Christ, and Christ lives for others. So therefore, when you are set free and given the Holy Spirit, you actually are able to love well, love better. And so what Paul is saying is, guys, you're bragging about your liberty, but you're using your liberty for the flesh. You're using your liberty for self-gain. This is destroying this church. You have been given liberty so that you can love well. And so that's the context, if you will, when we're going through 1 Corinthians. Right now it's 1 Corinthians 8. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So Paul isn't, isn't saying you don't have liberty. He's, he's agreeing. You have liberty. You're no longer under the law. Praise God. However, let's make sure that you don't use or misuse this liberty in your life. The same thing is true for us as Christians. Because many of us, when we deal with purity, we're under law. And we have this heavy-weighted law of our perfect behavior that is being demanded of us. And it's based on truths, because God does say, be ye perfect as I am perfect, be ye holy as I am holy. He says, uh, thou shalt be pure. I mean, this is, we know where we get it from, but as I've said throughout this entire week and in the Purity Summit, of course, some of you are going to, I didn't hear the Purity Summit. But the whole point was, there's two different ways to appropriate the high command. One is to try and do it in your own strength. The other is to allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of you and perform it in you. One is under law. The other is actually under grace. God enabling power. God does this in you. And so when we're set free, we're set free unto grace. Not for us to do whatever we want, but to now do what God would have us do instead of in our own strength try and actually still be controlled and ruled by the flesh. And so that's what Paul is referring to. So you've been set at liberty, but make sure this liberty doesn't become a stumbling block to those who are weak. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's quite a statement. In other words, he's free to eat meat, and he actually makes that clear. I'm free to eat meat, he says. In my own conscience, I'm free to eat meat. Even meat sacrificed to idols. It's just God made it. I'm fine with it. 
He says, however, if my eating of meat was to harm you, I would go without eating meat. So in other words, he has liberty, but what's he doing with that liberty? He's using it with love. He's wielding that liberty with love. So yes, he has liberty, but he loves with that liberty. He doesn't use it for selfish gain. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He's free. He has liberty. But what does he do? He says, but God, in my freedom, I now come back to you as a bond slave, and I say, pierce my ear. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I will do what you ask me to do. Because remember that statement I made? Uh, it was from the very beginning of when God wrote your love story about babes and big egos where uh, the guy sticks his bony finger across the table and says, I totally disagree with you, Ludie, because I'd said I was waiting on God for my wife. Uh, it didn't translate very well at that cool table. And the guy said, that's ridiculous. I believe we go out, we find who we want to marry, and then God blesses it. And uh, so I said, well, if God lined up 10 girls in front of me and said, Eric, you pick, I would fall down on my face and say, God, you know me better than I know myself. You pick. It's the same, same concept here. In other words, God's going to give me freedom. He's going to give me liberty. What do I do with it? I give it back to him. And I say, God, you know how this life is supposed to be lived. I can't live it by myself. Thank you for the freedom. You're in control of my life now. What, with my freedom, what am I going to give him? Control. So I was under the law and I was in bondage. I've been given freedom. Do you remember the story of the bond slave in the Old Testament, the bond servant? They are set free from their master, but because they love their master, they actually return and their ear is pierced and they become a bond servant. It's actually a love servant. This is exactly the model. John the Apostle in the book of Revelation calls himself a bond servant of, of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's one that because of love has returned unto Jesus and says, though I am free, I am your slave. I return to you and I say, you own me, you rule me, you use me. He said, it's different than being ruled by the law or being ruled by the flesh or being ruled by sin. You are now being ruled by Jesus. And if you try and hang out in the middle ground, I'm free, but I don't want to be ruled by Jesus, you will be ruled by the flesh. In other words, you will be ruled by something. So you have to choose with your liberty what you're ruled by. Paul says, I become a servant to all men. I'm going to be ruled by Jesus Christ. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Give no offense either, the, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit. What an interesting statement. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. In other words, as he goes about in life, our natural disposition is to think about ourself and what we get out of it. What gain do we get? And Paul says, I'm seeking other people's gain. That's like his wiring now. He's been totally changed. The profit of others, that they may be saved. His great ambition, his great life desire isn't that he would be wealthy, he would be famous, he would be powerful. He is seeking the salvation of everyone around him. So what you see is an orientation shift, okay? So if I were to set before you your marriage, I say, so, what do you desire? I desire to be fulfilled. I desire to be satisfied. I desire to be happy. That's what I desire. I want that happily ever after sort of marriage, you know, the one that makes me feel really good. It's really romantic for me. You see, look at the difference between what Paul is going to say. He's like, and I am willing to give up my own dreams, my own ambitions, my own way so that I could serve another. It's an outward focus. Now, here's what's interesting in the kingdom of heaven. If I were to say, would you be willing to lay those things down? Like, those are good things. I'm not saying they're not. But would you be willing to lay them down? Give them up to Jesus Christ and say, God, I want to be married and turn outward. I want to serve with my life. I want to give. Well, Eric, what if you don't get pleasure out of it? Whew, that's a hard one. Uh, God, I give up my right to sensual pleasure, to certain satisfaction, to my dream ambition, to my white picket fence. 
I'm going to give it to you because I trust you. Now, here's what's interesting. When you give up these things, when you hold on to them to try and find them, you lose them. When you give them up, you know what you find? Heaven on earth. It's quite the interesting mathematical principle, isn't it? You hold on, you keep, you lose. You give up, you serve. And the reciprocation that comes back when you give, when you think about your spouse, for instance, in marriage, all day long, you consider their needs, you know that you find a tremendous satisfaction in marriage. As opposed to if you think about your own self and you're constantly tell them, telling them what you need and how you're disappointed in the fact that they're not everything they should be for you, by the way, you will have the most miserable marriage on earth. And so it's a choice, isn't it? It's like, whoa, God's saying, can you let go of your life? But I have freedom. Yeah, and will you take that freedom and give it back to me and let me rule your life? Let me pierce your ear. I want to make you my bondservant. And if you are my bondservant, I will lead you into a version of living that is truly satisfying. But to find that depth of satisfaction, you have to let go of your life. It's an interesting tension that we, we deal with. So the all-important ingredient, as Paul even makes clear in 1 Corinthians, it's love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So I know we know that scripture, but you have to recognize this is even the context for it. The context is this wrestling match over control. They're saying, but I was set free. Yeah, but not set free to live your own way, to do what would please you. You were set free so that you could live his way to please him and to give your life to others. You see, love is meant to be a dominant attribute of your life, a controlling attribute of your life. Not law, law keeping, law abiding, love. You keep love and abide in love and you will find that your life will begin to flourish. So a quick definition for heroism that I really like. The more mature and stronger you become positionally in the kingdom. So as you mature spiritually, the lower a place socially you understand yourself to have in this world. So in other words, it's not that socially you do have a low place. It's that you accept the fact that the stronger you are spiritually, the lower a place you can take in this world. Happily. Jesus became a worm and no man. He took the lowest place and washed our feet. Why? Well, he was the strongest. So the stronger we get in our spiritual maturity, in our spiritual life, actually the lower place we are being prepared to take in service to others. Which means we give up our rights. We give up our way. We give up our control. And we say, no, I'm willing to be a servant to all. Well, a servant doesn't have rights. In fact, you become a slave. You become a worm and no man. Yeah, you've given it all up. Why? So you could win others. Your desire is to give of your life, not to get. You see, you're being trained in honorable love. Honorable love isn't just for marriage. It's not just for missions. It's for everything. You see, we are being built according to a pattern of selfless, sacrificial living. And it does touch on a lot of unique little spots and center points in our life. Control. Our way, our desires, our ambitions, our future hopes and dreams. God says, I see those. Would you trust those to me? I want to make you into a vibrant, strong Christian. And as long as you hold on to your way, then when I give you liberty, you have a tendency to try and leverage your liberty for you. But when you give up your way, you can now leverage that liberty with love. And when you do that... Watch out, world. So the lower a place socially you understand yourself to have in this world that those weaker than you have a claim on your strength. So when you see someone that is weak, they have a claim on your strength. You have strength to give. So when you see someone weak, your answer is yes. When you see someone without money, whatever strength you have, they have a claim on that. It's like, well, how can I help? You have time. How can I give? 
Others, this is all part of how it works in a family, by the way. In other words, when, you, when a husband is to treat his wife as a weaker vessel, just think about how that would apply to it. In other words, where he recognizes he lives in an understanding way, his strength, his time, his resource. In other words, that he's willing to relinquish his way of doing things to live in an understanding way. Now, that could be taken advantage of by a wife, which is why it's important for a wife to do the same and to live in a way that is truly honorable, that she may exemplify the love of Christ unto her husband. So I'm going to go through really quick 16 proving points of the one that is ready. So if we were to basically say, how do we know when someone is ready for marriage? Uh, now, there's various things that we could bring up, but this is a fun list. This is on the practical side, okay? So if I gave you a laundry list and I said, here's what I want you to work on, sort of like Leslie will leave a chore list for the kids. And she's like, when I get back, I want all these things to be done. Sort of like that, okay, guys? You have certain things that you need to start preparing to be excellent in marriage, okay? So all, number one, always demonstrate honor. Now, that's a pretty extreme thing. It's like, okay, what do I need to do? Well, you need to always demonstrate honor. It's like, wow, that's a pretty big one. And yet the concept is there isn't certain points in time where you don't because that's actually just a, it's like a bubble that needs to be popped. For instance, guys uh, have this notion that when they're just with guys, they don't need to be honorable. So certain behaviors, guyish behaviors come out that it's like, if, oh, if we're in a mixed group, I wouldn't do that. Or if I'm around your parents, I wouldn't do that. But it's just guys. So guys could be guys. And I would say, whoa, what was that? Could you repeat that out loud? Okay, let's uh, throw that overboard. Actually, guys need to behave like Christ. And so there isn't a time in life where you could be dishonorable, where it's okay to be crude and rude and disgusting. There is no space in life for that. You demonstrate honor always. The same is true with girls. Now, I've never been a girl, so I've never hung out with girls and like sleepovers and things like that. That just sounds really awkward and weird. Uh, but girls have their own little things that they do. They're catty. They are manipulative. They are gossipy. Okay, I'm not saying all of them any more than all guys are disgusting. I'm just saying there's propensities, and that's dishonoring. When you gossip, it is, there's no higher degree of dishonor. I mean, that is a very bad thing, right? So what we're learning to do is not just, oh, well, no one's around. We can behave this way. There's no downtime from honor. You behave as the kingdom of heaven. You are the mobile holy of holies at all times. All right, two, live a clean and orderly life. So this is both internally in your thought life, in your heart, but also externally. The way that you are preparing to live your life you are preparing to share that with someone else. And so if you are a mess and you do you know, throw your dirty socks over the, you know, the chair, well, guess what? Your future spouse is going to deal with that. And if you just start with the premise that that is considered rude and that that is disrespectful to someone else who has to share a life with you, then guess what? You're going to think, okay, what could I do to honor them? Because remember, this isn't about your convenience. It's so much easier to throw my socks right there as opposed to what would honor them? So you begin to build habit patterns for how you can begin to live a life that would truly be honorable, that's fragrant. If someone enters into it, they're like, this is, this is very pleasant. The same way you take care of your house, if someone's gonna come over for a visit or your dorm room, if someone's gonna step into it, you're thinking about what they are going to encounter, what they're gonna smell when they come in, what they're going to see when they come in. And so as a result, if you think about their highest good, you prepare the place to receive them. It's the same with your life. Your married life is you're preparing them, to, you're preparing to bring someone into it. Sleep with respect. I brought that one up the other day. It's more of a humorous one than anything, but I, I remember since I would have a tendency to snore and, you know, roll over and take all the sheets with me, that I was realizing that might not go over very well. Uh, and so I began to practice sleeping still on my side. And uh, it, it works. I don't snore when I do it, and I don't roll over at night. I, I roll over like twice during the night my little thing here and then I do this and I still do it I mean this is like 30 years later you know that uh, that's the case and so it's just sleeping with honor it's like how could I sleep in such a way that if someone's going to join me in my life that I'm not going to kick them out of bed in the middle of the night it's just a you know it's a good thing to think through 
Uh, eliminate the gross habits. I don't know that I need to comment on that, but uh, there are various gross habits that if you don't eliminate them, you bring grossness into your marriage, okay? Now, there, I could give all sorts of illustrations. Most of them lean on the guy side, uh, but I'm sure there'd be some benefit to the girls along the way. I just happen to be a guy, so I'm very familiar with the guy list. And, I mean, you could start with something like picking noses, and, you know, it's just start there. It's just like, yeah, that sort of thing, right there. Just eliminate it. You know, you might as well start now just being aggressive towards the things that actually bring disgust into any environment and live in such a way that is honorable. See, you have a body and you have the Holy Spirit and you actually can govern this body in a manner that is dignified and wonderful. Cultivate the manners of heaven. So there's various manners of heaven, sort of like the thank you note, okay? To give thanks when something happens. And so when you have a meal, to compliment the meal. When you're done with the meal, to actually get up and say, hey, can I clean the dishes? These are manners. And the manners of heaven are respect. That's what they are. Now, each culture has a different set of manners that show love and respect, which is why you become a student of the environment you're in, so that you can best love and serve in that environment. Demonstrate a disciplined manner. So discipline, if I were to give the list of the overs, oversleeping, overeating, uh, overspending, uh, over, we put almost anything, overwatching, uh, overentertaining yourself, uh, uh, whatever it could be, okay, overtalking, there are things that if they're not restrained actually show disrespect to those around you, okay? For instance, the fact that you overeat at first, especially as a guy, you're like, well, that's how I honor the chef, is I overeat. And there, it is true. There is something about, you know, if, if there's a cook and they make a meal and they love to see you just eat and eat and eat. They really do. That is true. However, it is a certain disrespect, and just follow me on this, when you have a certain pile of food in the middle and one guy just keeps reaching in and grabbing it all and he's not thinking about everyone else around the table. Overeating is a very, very dangerous propensity, okay? I was an overeater, by the way. Never looked it, which is why I could get away with it. But, and, and of course, the women were always like, you still should probably eat some more, Eric, because I think you need to pack on a little. It doesn't matter how much I put on, it will never pack on. It just doesn't work that way with me. And so to remove the overs from your life, to actually allow God to touch an over, it's like oversleeping, overeating, overtalking. There's just various things that each of us might have a propensity for. And as a result, uh, we need to allow the Spirit of God to help us in those because they're issues of respect, actually. Number seven, handle money like Jesus. So this is my, my simple rule of thumb. Starve the profane things in life and don't spend on them. Just don't spend on things that are profane. They're opposite the kingdom of heaven. They're empty. They're worthless. They're actually harmful to your life. Don't, don't invest in that. Uh, skimp on the secular things. In other words, the things that are needed in this world but you don't have to overdo it on them, okay? So there's all sorts of things that can fall into that category, like the car, okay? A car is somewhat necessary, right? Especially if you live a good distance from, and so you need a car, but there's different ways. There are certain types of cars, I'm very familiar with what cars they are too, that would be really fun to have, but in those situations, you oftentimes have to show restraint because it actually could affect everything else in your, fa your familial budget. If you spend 150000 on this luxury vehicle and then have nothing for food. Okay, so in other words, skimp on the secular and then splurge on the sacred things. So most people don't say that. That's not Dave Ramsey's uh, philosophy, by the way. Uh, if you follow Dave Ramsey, oftentimes you won't splurge on anything. Uh, and so, but I'm, my philosophy has always been splurge on the sacred things, which might mean giving up everything for Jesus. Yeah, that's the way Jesus calls us to. It does not mean there's not wisdom and restraint in there. However, starve the profane, skimp on the secular, splurge on the sacred. That's what God did. He splurged. Look at it. He gave up his life, guys. He just like poured it out, dumped it out. He splurged on that which he said, that is sacred. So I want to follow the Christ pattern. Number eight, live with two eyeballs watching. We've covered this multiple times. Leslie's a little sensitive to the fact that I didn't just call it two eyes watching because they're her eyes. When I was single, I was like, well, I wonder what my future wife would be thinking. To begin to live right now as if you have a future spouse. Now, it goes beyond that because when you're married, did you know that you still live? 
in such a way as to honor in every situation you're in because your spouse won't be with you every moment of the day, but you still live with them in mind. You still live with two eyeballs to recognize, I want to live in such a way which would honor. And so it's not like when you get married and you say, I do, suddenly you throw out honor to the wind. You actually continue in a pattern. It's a mold that you are setting. Number nine, treat parents and siblings like royalty. This is a preparatory thing. You see, if you are mean to your family, well, then you're setting a pattern for being mean to your future family. We don't want that. None of us do. And yet, when we think about our future spouse, we're like, but I'm going to love them different because I'll be attracted to them. And yet, they will become familiar to you. And when someone becomes familiar, that low-lying behavior that is just always there hiding in the bushes begins to come out. It hides when we're in social situations, but it comes out when we're in familiar territory, which is why we need to circle that behavior that is in the bushes and say, God, correct that. I don't want any low-lying behavior that is going to be opposite what I would want to bring into a marriage. I want to bring in Christ. I want to bring in sacrificial love into my marriage. So where there's selfish ambition, selfish desire, let's let the Spirit of God touch it. Number 10, quick to sacrifice for the benefits of others. This is a practice. You see, there's, in every situation, there's, there's circumstances where you actually could act. They're not big, maybe, where it's like, hey, there's a bullet flying. Would someone in the room stand up and you know, jump in front of it? They're not always like that. They're not extreme things of life and death. They're small things. Like giving up, uh, this is a classic example when you're at a place like Ellerslie, where if you see that there's only one role left, oh, these are hard moments for us guys. There's like one role left and there's a few people behind you that you just move on and walk past the role. Oh, that's, that's like so hard because you're thinking about others. Those are really difficult because you have a right to that role. In your line position, that's yours. Okay, you follow me? This is tough stuff. Okay, I'm just saying this is how you practice. It's in little moments like that, and hopefully we don't get set up for those moments here at Ellerslie. We'll, we'll try not to set us up for but it happens, okay? It's happened all growing up for me. When it's like you have the something or other in the middle of the table, and then my brother's always on the other side grabbing, I grab, and you sense that he grabs three, and he doesn't need three. Hey, you put those back. Until you eat those, you can't have It's like this sense of equity, right? And what we do is we're willing to let go of our right. We're willing to practice the life of sacrifice. No, you. And then talk about convicting my younger brother. If I said, no, no, you take the last one. What? Well, He's like, I really want to, but I don't like you winning, Eric. Seems like you're winning if I take the last one. <laughs> so quick to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Number 11, purity in mind and body. How is purity gained? To begin to practice this, it's not something you muscle your way through. Most of us immediately dig into our own pockets and say, okay, God, I'm going to do this for you. But if you want to function in purity, you need to get into Christ. You need to be resolute in that and be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is how it works. You must allow the Holy Spirit to guard and to govern. God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to be strong in me. And as a result, you start practicing that. You carry that into marriage, and it's very, very significant. Number 12, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The funny one, it's a, it's a scriptural concept. My family grew up, well, I grew up with my family teaching this to me. In other words, if you have a grievance, if you have a frustration, if you have an anger, some, some point, that you deal with it that day. And so I, was, I used to be very uh, superstitious about the fact that if the sun was going down, it's like, oh no. Because if the sun goes down in your anger, it's like he gives the devil a place. That's the concept in scripture. Oh no, I don't want to give the devil a place. So the sun's going down, I'm running across the house. I am so sorry. And I would make something right. It's, well, it's probably, it, it's not as extreme as that. It's not like just because sun goes down, the devil has place. It's an attitude of do, dealing with it now as opposed to dealing with it later. And so for each one of us, we need to be ready to deal with things in our life that day. If we have a grievance, we make it right. If we have offended someone, we make it right. If we have any type of thing, whatever communication would be life-giving, we don't stew, we don't sit on things, we address to bring health and life that day. 
Very, very significant for marriage, by the way. If you don't deal with things like that in marriage, they fester and they actually blow up. And it, little pieces of marriage can be all over the house. So as a result, to tend to things well with honor is critical. And the final four, be thoughtful. In other words, think about, you can practice this right now, thinking about others throughout the day. Like, it, it, just imagine if you were to think, okay, who could I think about today? God put some people on my mind. I want to take a little bit of time, maybe 10 minutes every day, to think and do something special for others. Okay, so say it's your mom, and you write a quick note to your mom, maybe it's an email or a text, that is proactive, saying, I was thinking about you today, and I was thinking, you are just a great mom. The way you did this for me when I was young, it's so rare, and so few in my generation have a mom that would do that. I just want to freshly say thank you. Boom, how long did that take you? Okay, that was, what, a minute? And you actually did something. Now, what does that mean to your mom? You can imagine, because if you received something like that from your mom that said, I, am just, I was thinking about you today, and I was just thinking, what a special child you are. Okay, it would actually invigorate your life. That's what thoughtfulness is. Thoughtfulness takes energy. It takes strength. It takes something that most of us are like, oh, I don't have time for that. Oh, that's going to take... You have to rise up and proactively be thoughtful. And yet, I, I know because, I mean, I'm, I try and be thoughtful to be thoughtful. It's a, it's a funny statement. It's like two steps because men, I think women are more naturally thoughtful. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've only been a guy, remember? Uh, that women are more naturally thoughtful than men are. Men get in the zone. They get focused on something, and then someone's talking, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, we can't, and so as a result, it's harder for us to be thoughtful in those moments. Like here I am focused on taxes, and it's hard for me to be thoughtful about, well, I need to say something sweet to my wife. It's like that's not normal for a guy's brain. And so I have to be thoughtful to be thoughtful. I've actually had things in the past where I've had reminders to be thoughtful. Isn't that a funny statement? That's like, that's being thoughtful to be thoughtful. So it's like, ding, ding, what's the ding? What's the ding, ding? Oh, oh, oh yeah, I need to be thoughtful. Isn't that a, a weird thing? I mean, you guys don't see the irony in having to be thoughtful to be thoughtful. But be thoughtful, because if you can practice being thoughtful now, when you bring that into marriage, whew, that is such a gift. You see, in romantic, that, that pre-marriage romance, it's easy to be thoughtful, because you're consumed with it. Everything in your brain is always on the other person. In fact, you're trying to pray. You're like, Jesus, I love you, oh, and you drift off. And so it's actually hard to not think of them. So it's very easy to be thoughtful, but when you get back into a normal rhythm of life, and this person is just part of your life, you go back to old patterns. But if your old patterns are good patterns of thoughtfulness, then as a result, you are setting a pattern for excellence in marriage. And romance actually flows out of thoughtfulness. Number 14, follow God's lead in all matters. The way we always described it was give God the pen. Let him lead. Let him take charge. So this is what we do now. This is what we do later. That doesn't change when you get married. And suddenly you take the pen back and go, all right, God, I'm going to write my marriage story. I'm going to write my ministry story. No, God has to be in control. So let him be in control now. Number 15, develop complementary service skills. There are certain things, and this is more on the, it's humorous, but, but serious. There are certain things. I was trained to be a white-collar worker. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but that means to use my brain. Okay, I didn't have to use my hands uh, with skills, you know, like plumbing and electrical, because I have a good mind, which means I can hire people to do that for me. So here's what happens in marriage. You know, I'm like this white-collar husband, and my wife's like, hey, could we fix this door? Huh? Door? Hinge? What's a hinge? I, I don't know anything about that. I, well, I, other, other husbands know how to fix doors. Chuck down the street fixed his wife's door. I'm like, well, Chuck doesn't have the education I have to be able to do nothing practical. <laughs> so here's what I would always encourage. I would encourage each of you to actually learn to be excellent in a way where you can give of your skill to a marriage. Marriage is built stronger when the couples actually prepare as opposed to accidentally barge into marriage. In other words, there's a season that you have to actually be ready 
with practical skill. You don't need to pull an Eric Ludy and have no clue how to fix a house. No clue how to deal with anything electrical or plumbing. I know how to do the plunger. <laughs> I did know how to do that. I do know how to change the toilet paper roll. Okay, so I, 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 there are things that I do know. No, I, I actually have learned quite a few things. Uh, but when I first started, I tell you what, it's like my, my education in school, and I, would, I did really well in school, gave me nothing to bring. Leslie's just sort of, because her family is so skilled in construction and everything. I mean, they can do anything. And then Eric could do nothing. So I'm just telling you, out of some of my weakness in my past, just learn, grow, use me as a trampoline to spring forth. Uh, number 16, eat your veggies. So what this one means is that, have you ever seen it? Okay, and this disturbs all of us. Have you ever seen the married couple that when they're falling in love, they want to look good for each other? They dress up, they iron their clothes, they spritz on a little something, right, to smell good. They brush their teeth, they have a little gargle. Extra, you know, three times they gargle. You know, because they're just imagining it could be tonight that we kiss. And so they're, they're like ready, right? And they're doing they have the extra lip stuff on there. There's, and they're, they're wanting to be ready. Why? You see, you are considering them. You are considering what they're going to experience when they engage with you. What are they going to smell when they engage with you? What are they going to look at when they engage with you? There's something beautiful in that. Now, there's something that can be massively overstated where you only think about you and what you look like and all these things. And I get that. And that's a distortion. However, have you noticed that some couples, they get married, and once they catch the person, they just let it all go. And they don't care about what they look like. They don't care about what they smell like. They don't care about what they act like. I've heard that story so many times. It's ad nauseum. What if you did it different? This is, why, this is what I mean by eat your veggies. In other words, don't you want to look good for your spouse even 30 years into your marriage? Where your spouse could actually look around and say, wow, I've got it good. I've got it real good. Why? Simply because you care for yourself. I had a, a season where I was eating sugar a lot. I, I like sugar, okay? I'm sorry, it was, it was a tough thing to admit. But, uh, and it was like an undue season, you know, where, where you have your seasons where you're restrained and your seasons where you sort of throw off, you take off your belt and they're like, who cares? I was in one of those, not really realizing I was in one of those. But Leslie came up to me once and she's like, I'm just concerned. Because <laughs> I don't look it. You know, you wouldn't see any difference in me that I'm in a sugar season, right? It's just like, well, Eric looks the same as when he's not in a sugar season. And, but Leslie would see this, you know, that I would just, you know, yeah, you know, at dinner, it's like, yes, could I have a root beer with that? She, her eyes, eyebrows would go up. Yeah, and by the way, do you have a dessert menu? Mm. Oh, yeah, could we have the Sunday, maybe a little extra fudge on there? Leslie's like, hmm. And I'm like, what, what, what's the big deal? And so I was in a sugar season in this time, okay? It's not that I don't have a propensity. I know Hudson's listening in right now off to the side of the room. He's like, yes, he still has that love. <laughs> I, we, we, have a, we have a joke in our home because I, I shop for my cereal. I get a special cereal because all my kids get some really boring cereals uh, that my, my, my wife picks out. They're like all gluten-free, sugar-free, you know, very uh, miserable. And... <laughs> And so I get my special batch of cereal, and I get it from the organic food section, and it's even gluten-free. And Leslie's like, that doesn't mean anything, as I bring it home, and it's called Mom's Best. I'm like, it's called Mom's Best? And, she, and Leslie's just, it always gets her riled up when I bring it up. And, and Hudson's like, I want some Mom's Best. Uh, and so th there still are some sub-issues here. But... I'm not in a sugar season like I, I was then. So. But I remember Leslie came up to me and she said, I just, I, I, I'm not against you eating things. I just, I, I want you to be strong for me. I, I want you to go the distance with me. And I feel like if you eat this way, <laughs> you won't go the distance with me. It's such a weird perspective to think through. It's like, my eating sugar is actually making my wife feel insecure. Isn't that just an odd thought? I mean, it never had crossed my mind. But, and since I don't look any different, it doesn't stand out to me. And it doesn't change me. I still have the same energy. I'm fine. And yet, if it makes her feel insecure, what did Paul say? I would go without eating meat till the world ends. 
Okay, now Leslie has not given me a prohibition of eating everything. I still can buy mom's best cereal, which by the way is gluten-free and it's in the organic food section. I'm just gonna repeat that for all of you, just so you're very impressed with my cereal choice. However, it was right after this, I came into a coffee shop and they had one of those glass domes over like a cake in there and it was a chocolate cake with a big, huge amount of chocolate frosting on top. It's like my favorite kind. We call it the Pollyanna cake. Uh, have you ever, remember Pollyanna? She's in that fair at the end and they're carrying around these huge pieces of cake. And I was like, that's my dream right there. I want one of those pieces of cake. And so we call this Pollyanna cake. There was a huge Pollyanna piece in there. And the person's, and I go, oh, that looks good. And the person says, yeah, it's, it's a day old. You can have it. Uh, the owner said I could give it away. Did you want me to give that to you? And I like gulp, because I'm thinking of Leslie, my two eyeballs. And she's like, Eric, I just, I really want you to go the distance with me. And I got this, oh, it looked good. And the awkward moment when I say, no, no, uh, no I, I can't. Uh, you can't. Yeah, it's for my wife. Uh, and they're like, what? <laughs> I didn't really explain it, but it, it was, I was telling the truth, guys. Uh, and so there's different things. Eat your veggies. In other words, be strong, be fit, take care of yourself and start doing it now. And then plan on continuing that out of a love for them. Even if they're the only ones that are going to see you that day, get up and get ready for them. Isn't that an interesting thought? Get up and get ready for them. Look good for them. Smell good for them. Not for the world out there, for them. Your love life doesn't begin when you finally meet Mr. or Miss Wright. Brace yourselves, I got an extra slide here. It begins right now. Most of us are like, well, when I get a love life, then I'll start thinking about these things. Actually, that's your problem right there. You're not living with a future in mind. Even when you're young, you can begin to live and prepare in such a way where the decisions you make when you're five can affect you when you're 55. The decisions you make when you're 15 can affect you when you're, I was going to say 150, but that's a little extreme, can affect you when you're older. And we need to recognize that right now, that our love lives are being defined by patterns that we are building and installing in our life right now. The great thing is we serve a God of redemption. So if you find yourself having a pattern that is unhealthy, just bring it to him. He, he'll say, oh, I'd love to help you with that. He's... He's a God who takes all the junk we bring and converts it into gold. So let's do that. Father, we love you. And I pray that you would cultivate this honorable love in us. That we would be outward in our deportment, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. That we would learn to serve and wash feet and not just think about ourselves. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.